I just love what you do for me. You're so reliable, smart and incredibly well-connected. <clears throat> Excuse me, could I pay for my meal? Oh, of course, just having a moment with my Combank Smart Terminal. Tap away. Feel a stronger connection. With extra connectivity, you're always payment ready. There's more to love with the Combank Smart Terminal. Mm, it is a nice terminal. Eligibility criteria, fees and T's and C's apply. Hey, welcome to the Medicubes podcast, where we bring you all that's good, exciting and sometimes challenging in primary health care. I'm Chris Spee, joined by my good friends Kim Pointer and Rivka Hagen. Together we bring a wealth of experience and passion, as well as being in the thick of what's going on in our industry. We used to have a laugh, debrief and chat about all the big issues and what was happening in our own professional worlds and invite you to join us in this conversation. So join us and our invited guests every month to bring you a lighthearted take on the latest, greatest and controversial issues and a few pearls of wisdom along the way. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. A hearty welcome from Birupai country. And uh, Rivka Hagen here. I'm meeting you from Jajawurrung country. And a big hello from Turbul and Jagara country. Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of MediCubes where we're continuing our exploration of all things payroll tax. I'm joined by my amazing co-host Riff. How are you today, Riff? Hey, Chris. Yes, doing absolutely fine. Thank you. And we've got Kelly Chard and Ben Ryan still with us, still talking all things payroll tax. Go back and have a listen to episode one on payroll tax. If you haven't listened to it, we're going to come in hot and keep rocking and rolling through the things that we need to know as practice managers about payroll tax. Welcome back, Kelly. Welcome back, Ben. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Ruth. <laughs> All right. Hey, let's jump right into this episode. In the first episode of the payroll tax discussion, we covered off the basics of what payroll tax is all about and some of those themes that practice managers and practice owners need to get comfortable with. So that was a really great overview there. But I'd love to uh, dig in a little bit further now and get a bit better understanding of the notion of service agreements and what they should cover off on. Who'd like to kick off the conversation around service agreements? I think I'll take a bullet for the team as the lawyer <laughs> on the chat. And I think with service agreements, I'm obviously very biased because I write them for a living, but probably something that people should know about them as a quick, do I have a good service agreement or don't I have a good service agreement? Maybe need to talk to someone about it. I've probably looked at the better part of a few thousand in the last few months alone. So I'm very good at picking them up. But if your agreement is probably... Oh, you need an award for that. That's taking a bullet for the team for sure on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like taking a bullet sometimes, but it's good. I enjoy it. Certainly, if you've got a service agreement that's one or two pages, it's not going to be long enough to cover off everything that you need to. I understand that doctors are very difficult to get to sign documents and to read the documents fulsomely, but... It's just not going to provide that protection for you or the doctors. And certainly the next sort of quick pro tip is if you read through your agreement and it is drafted in a way and even says in some instances that the doctor is engaged to provide services to the practice, you're almost guaranteed to have a relevant contract. And so one thing that I know a lot of people do is they go, oh, I'll go through my agreement. And if it says that, I'll just change it all the way around and I don't need to talk to Ben about it or anyone else. I have seen agreements where people change 
the recitals on the second or third page to flip it back around to be the doctor engaging the practice, but then they don't read two pages down and the whole body of the document is still drafted the wrong way around. Certainly make sure you deal with that and have that quick think through it. Some other lawyer pro tip fundamentals for everyone for free, which is even better that you don't have to pay for this, lucky you, (laughs) is the doctor really needs to be engaging the practice to provide services. The doctors should own their patient records. I've certainly seen a lot of service agreements in my time where the practice owns all of the patient records. I know that technically the practice is the party that's providing all of the software. The doctors are putting all of their patient records into the software. But what you can deal with is the doctors own the records. If they leave, they get a copy. But the practice needs to maintain a copy for its own risk. So just having a simple license in there that says, I, the practice, get to keep a copy of this if you, the doctor, leave for my own protection and use. At the end of the day, you need to cover yourselves as well. Ideally, we don't want to see any restraints of trade or anything in there that says the doctors aren't able to work in competition because... They should be free agents. They should be able to do whatever they want to do. So many times we'll talk to practices and they'll say, yeah, well, the doctors come in when they want, they go when they want. We've got no control over what they do or when they do it. And I say, perfect. That's exactly what it should be in a service agreement, but that's not what your service agreement says because it hasn't been drafted properly. So take those restraints out. Don't have them in there because they're not appropriate for a service agreement and avoid any sorts of controls over the doctors in terms of you must work this many days in the practice. You must work at least four hours a day. If you're going to go on leave, you've got to give us a month's notice. If you're sick, you've got to give us notice, all of those sorts of things because, again, they're all indicators of a relevant contract. And if you want those sorts of provisions in there, that's fine, but you're an independent contractor arrangement and you're going to need to account for payroll tax. We touched on in the last episode very briefly the bank accounts and the flow of funds. Certainly, as I said, if you're rolled on through the uh, podcast, you'll be very fresh. But as I said in the last one, ideally what we want to see is that the doctors are seeing their own patients, they're being paid by their patients, and then they're paying the practice for the provision of services to them. So ideally, we would have the practice only receiving the 30, 35%, whatever it is, service fee and having the Tyro and best practice or whatever partnership of billing and software management you have to essentially facilitate the payment at the counter straight to the doctor. You can then run the report, see what the service fee is and charge them the fees accordingly. A lot of practices as they get bigger potentially might need to look at some other options But as those other options come in, so too does the risk or the exposure to payroll tax, particularly where you still want to hang on to that clearing account or the flow of funds going through the practice from the patient and then down to the doctor. So can I ask, Kelly, in terms of that clearing account notion, from an accounting perspective, what are the implications for you? What would be your advice of the do's and don'ts? Yeah, so that's a massive can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> that's Listen why I asked it. Yeah. Yeah. We can't see Kelly's face as that question passed through, but we can see each other and Kelly was just like, oh. oh. oh there's the bus. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much, Ruth. <laughs> and, and I think the issue in practical terms that we're having is that we know that in most cases the way that uh, – practices are operating and the best case is that the funds go to the doctor 
directly because it's that doctor's business. And that just makes sense. And obviously the different appeals and case laws and things have given a little bit of support to that. That's the preferred method. But practically many practices are struggling with, well, how do we make that work without just losing visibility over everything, having issues with reconciliation, we're trying to work out what's a true debtor, what's not. So this is where, depending on the size of your practice, will depend on the complexity here. So for a small practice, if you have three or four doctors, maybe five doctors, it's usually, although it is a change to your administration process, getting rid of your clearing account and doing all the work to have funds flow directly into each doctor's bank account can be achieved and that you might need to set up some different workflows and systems, which you should talk about with an accountant or a bookkeeper or a good advisor to make sure everybody understands what's going on. If you run multiple practices, maybe multiple sites, have a lot of billing running via your practice management system, it can be a little bit messy. And that's where we're starting to see some development in terms of software proposals and things like that that are coming out. A few of the banks are working on different things that are going to hopefully help us with this. It's a little bit of a watch this space until things get up and running. And I'm hopeful that we're going to get a solution here, but it's an ever-changing sort of situation at the moment, particularly in terms of how things are going to work, maybe rulings from the different state payroll tax officers that are going to come out in relation to different measures that are undertaken here. So each practice needs to navigate their own way here. And look, we've worked with a number of practices in different types of systems that are helping them to keep some visibility so that they can perform the administration of the billing. And some practice- So would that include things like just having practice management access or visibility over those accounts so that from a reconciliation point of view, it is possible to do that and possibly with a hands-off approach in terms of I can see, but I can't make changes to it. I don't have direct access to that bank account. Is that what it would look like or could it be something different? Yeah, no. So I think you have nailed it there where you said hands-off approach to have invisibility because you don't want to set up a sham where you just change the flow of funds and the practice or the practice manager or whoever is still having control over those funds. So you've got to be really careful there. Look, there's been some different approaches. There's been some practices that might have a separate bank fee type scenario where they can have the transactions coming through so that they can be looking for particularly third-party payments because the Medicare and the Tyro and that is a lot easier to follow and track. So a lot of the workers' comp and insurance payments and things like that are a bit more of a headache. So yes, having visibility over those bank accounts in a very hands-off manner, it's still an ongoing process and it's not perfect. And I'm not going to sit here and say I'm an accounting whiz that's worked it all out and I've got the solution because it is going to take a different type of reconciliation process and regular reconciliation as well. And if you want to be able to track those payments and manage your debtors and things like that in a very systemized way, it's going to take a very different mindset than the old clearing account mindset. And there was different levels of reconciliation with the old clearing account. So, you know, we had some people that would tick off every item and there's obviously people using surgical partners as well that does that sort of automated bank correct work for you. 
But then we have clients that it's a bucket. It's a bucket where everything goes and there is a lot of variance that's probably lurking around in the bottom of that bucket. Once that central clearing account is taken back out to each practitioner's own account, you've got the same sort of choices. Are we going to reconcile this and work with the doctor to help them manage that because it's their responsibility, it's their money, or are we going to leave it as a bit of a (laughs) free-for-all? And yeah. I'll look, I just probably make a comment there and say if that additional work is being undertaken, I guess the practice would have the opportunity and the right to charge for that work to take place. And I'm just <laughs> going to leave that one there. Yeah. Uh, ben. <laughs> yeah, I think Kelly's nailed the summary of the struggle that people have in terms of probably how does that get implemented into my service agreement then. We've seen all sorts of weird and wonderful things of how people are trying to deal with the payments and make sure that the doctors get paid, that they get paid, and that everything's reconciled. Certainly, most practices will be operating on a fees-received charging basis for their service fee. Potentially, quite a few are now moving to a fees-charged basis and saying it's the doctor's risk, it's their business, so maybe they should be the ones that need to be telling us if someone hasn't paid a bill and then we can chase it up for them. We've seen practices where they shift to having a bookkeeper that they provide as part of the service and that bookkeeper gets access to all of the doctor's individual bank accounts, goes in, does all the reconciliations, queues up the payment essentially to the practice for the service fee and the doctors then authorise that payment back. So essentially they don't really need to do any work, you're still providing that fee reconciliation service for them. Potentially, as Riff says, you might charge them a bit more for that service offering, but you can do that. And then all the way down to, well, if the money's all in the doctor's bank accounts, then how do we actually get paid? I always say to people, well, you have the fortunate benefit of, you know, exactly where all of the doctors work because they have a room just down the hallway from you and you probably know where all of them live as well. So it should be relatively easy to chase those debtors and those doctors for payment. But you can have arrangements where even you get into the joys of either direct debits debits, or maybe even having a service fee where it's a sort of fortnightly, weekly minimum payment to cover your base costs and then whatever the service fee is for the month, you do a bit of a reconciliation and you charge them that gap at the end of the month. There's not probably anything that someone could come up with that I haven't seen before and I'm sure that Kelly hasn't seen before, but there's so many ways to do it. I don't want anyone to panic about oh, it's just all going to be too hard. We're never going to get there. Because certainly a lot of the practices that I talk to, they have that fear of, oh, if we have to change this, we're never going to be able to run the business. It's going to be an administrative nightmare. And it all seems very overwhelming. 99.9% of the time, they come back to me a few weeks later and they go, actually, it's pretty quick and it's even better doing it this way. I can't believe I haven't changed it to doing this before. So the crass can be greener on the other side. It's just taking that leap of faith to make sure you're doing everything properly. Oh, look, I love hearing that it's not all doom and gloom. That's That's just making my heart sing. (laughs) So I guess around that doom and gloom, there has been some movement from the Queensland and South Australian offices around the amnesty. And I think politically understanding what this means, and there's a whole sort of other conversation around that to be had. But 
the amnesty. What does it mean? And should practices be doing it? Should they not be doing it? I'm guessing the answer is going to be it's up to your individual circumstances, but I wouldn't be a very good host if I didn't put a cheeky question like that in there. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Chris. Ben, maybe kick us off with amnesties. What are we doing? Yeah. Is this like Kelly got the bus question and now it's my turn to, to take a bullet from the team? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um... yeah. yeah. I'm going to shot like devil eyes through the video right now for giving me that question. So listeners, I'm taking a hit for the team um, and, 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 and ask that one. Look, every single practice asks me every time I talk to someone, should we sign up for the amnesty? Is it a good deal, Ben? And really, exactly what you said, Chris, it is genuinely a case-by-case basis. We can rule out every state and territory that's not Queensland and South Australia pretty quickly because you can't apply for the amnesty. There isn't one currently for your state as at 14 July when we're recording this. Certainly, what about 8.56 in the morning because it may change by <laughs> yeah, 5 p.m. this afternoon. could change yeah, at yeah, 9 yeah. o'clock. They might roll out yeah. something somewhere else. Who knows? Yeah. And so really in those two states, it's we're just talking about GP practices. We're also just talking about existing GP practices, not new GP practices. So really it's a case of if you are a existing GP practice, I think for both states it was essentially before 1 July this year or at the very least 2022 previously. So if it's a case of your business has been trading for quite some time, you potentially either have been accounting for payroll tax on your nurses, admin team, relevant contract doctors, but not all of your doctors, or if you've just never accounted for payroll tax at all, probably have a bit of a discussion with someone about whether you should consider applying for that amnesty. Something to probably think about is that with that amnesty, you almost need to say to the revenue office, I think I'm doing the wrong thing. Can you please give me some time to get my house in order and make sure that I am doing everything properly? And if I'm not doing things properly or if I should be paying payroll tax, I'll start paying payroll tax after the expiry of this amnesty period. But you're not going to go back in time and essentially give me a very large historical payroll tax bill because they can go up to five years back historically when they are calculating it. And it's not just the tax bill, it's all of the penalties and interest that they like to charge as well. So take the time, sit down, see if you do think you have a problem. And if you do think you have a problem, weigh up the costs of or the risk of saying to the revenue office, I think I'm doing the wrong thing, give me some time make those mandatory reporting requirements and all those other things. And yeah, it's really, it's going to have to be on a case-by-case basis and read through all of the material yourself to make sure you're comfortable with it. Yep. Yeah, look, really, it's a case of you should talk to your practitioners and make sure you get the right advice. Look, don't just talk to the lawyers, make sure you talk to Kelly as well, because certainly from an accounting perspective, there's quite a few things that you need to consider, I'm sure. And Kelly, there's the perfect person to tell everyone about all of those things that they need to be mindful of with the amnesties. Yeah, so I agree 100% with what Ben has just said. One of the concerns that we as advisors, particularly up here in Queensland, have is that there is some discussion around changing the form where you will report your payroll tax taxable wages to separate out the amounts that you are paying or dispersing to doctors. So, you know, it worries me when there's a lot of disclosure, particularly when businesses don't have their model moving forward 100% worked out. So you're basically, as Ben said, signing up, sort of raising your hand and saying, yes, I think we're probably, you know, liable for payroll tax. Here, I'm going to tell you for the next couple of years exactly how much that amount is. 
But then what happens in a couple of years' time when you've made changes to your business model, those payments aren't reported anymore. It just worries me that you're sort of opening the door for a little bit of an investigation there. So I'm not saying don't do it. And I've actually had some clients that we're working through it and actually have some clients that have had investigations historically and been assessed to pay large amount of payroll tax of actually getting that in the process of getting that all refunded back via the amnesty. So there is some wins for some clients mm. happening. So yeah, just reiterating exactly what Ben said, it's case by case. And in Queensland, because we got an extension to the end of September to actually express interest to the amnesty, I'm advising all my clients that will be waiting until that last couple of days in September to actually make the decision because we're working through a range of other issues at the moment. That's really great. Thanks for sharing those real world examples, Kelly. I think it's really helpful to know this is going on and there's, there's other people doing it. I guess I have a question that probably should ask at the start, but are there practices that are just registering for payroll tax and paying it because they kind of look at what might have to change and how they work as a practice and they might work as a team and say, well, actually paying payroll tax is just what we want to do. Has anyone experienced that or had clients come across that? Yeah, yes, they're definitely their minority. <laughs> um, yeah. But look, I have had a couple of clients that have actually taken the amnesty and have made the decision that at the end of the amnesty period that they will be paying the payroll tax based on current interpretations unless something changes because they've really looked at their business model and how things, what direction they're going to. Some clients that are starting to get more funding and grant monies that are rolling out clinic type services in their practices and specialised clinics. They have seen the best way to do that is to actually engage the practitioners to provide the services to the practices. They've said that they're going to factor that into their business model moving forward because even with that cost of doing business, that payroll tax, they still see that as a better business model than the traditional business model where the doctors are just using the services. So I do think that there is a little bit of that going on. So maybe the payroll tax discussion is forcing the hand of people a little bit to think more critically and strategically about business models into the future. And in terms of the traditional model that we've spoken about for most of these podcast episodes, I haven't had anyone yet say, yep, I'm going to pay it. I'm happy to and sign up. But and then I think like our last episode of Medicare, we were talking about patient registration and those more team-based models of care, Kelly. I think it's probably sort of aligning with your saying with practices, my Medicare and those sort of blended payments, what's this going to mean for payroll tax? Yeah, I do think that things are going to change. It might be slowly and it's mm. going to depend on what happens in that space in the years ahead. But so far, what we know about my Medicare and these sorts of programs is that the practice is central to the program in terms of patient enrolment and providers being linked to the practice. If you've got funding coming into this central practice that is so core to the program and then being dispersed between the team, very difficult to run that old traditional model that we've been talking about under those circumstances. Mm. So I do think that over time that that is going to force, as I was saying before, some more thinking about business models and ways of engagement. And then it becomes also a legal issue too because you might have practitioners on sort of multiple different methods of engagement, which becomes a bit muddy and you want to go and sit down with Ben and say, I want to do <laughs> over here we're doing this and get some advice about that. 
But yeah, I think it is definitely going to. And I hate payroll tax. You know, it is the worst tax, not just for medical practices, but for all businesses. I've paid it for years. And I think the majority of Australians hate it as well. But I will say that I think you're better off long-term focusing on your business model and how you want to engage and how you're going to be able to serve your patients and provide the best care, maybe a multidisciplinary team rather than making decisions based on avoiding attacks because I just feel like that's just a path down to a dead end. And obviously you don't want to pay the tax if it doesn't apply or you don't have to because it's a crappy tax, but also don't do things just to avoid a tax because, yeah, it's just it's not going to help your business long term. Yeah, I think really it's the case of making sure that if you are going to have those various types of engagement and various types of relationships with the doctors, don't have an agreement that doesn't reflect what you're actually doing with them. Don't just have one agreement where you say, oh, this is the majority of the time, but we're not going to worry about doing something else to record how we're dealing with the doctors over here because we don't want to potentially have that risk or that exposure. Sham contracting is a very real thing and people accidentally do it where they potentially stretch the relationship outside of the contract. Your agreement needs to be reflective of exactly what you're doing in the practice. And if that's the case of having multiple agreements with the doctors, then yes, that's going to increase the risk, but you're better off having clear terms that set it out so that you can present that to the revenue office if you need to make that argument. And really, it's a case of if you are doing and dealing with the doctors in such a way that payroll tax gets enlivened, then you need to pay payroll tax. And if you're not dealing with the doctors in a way where it shouldn't be enlivened, then you shouldn't be paying payroll tax and you need to make sure that your agreements are reflective of how you're actually dealing with them on a day-to-day basis. Hey, can I throw a controversial question out there? What I see a lot of in the social media pages and the chit-chatter between practice managers is, can I get somebody's copy of a service agreement, please? We're looking at ours and I'm looking for a template. Help me out. (laughs) What's the right response to questions like that? Yeah, I think I'll take a bullet from the table on that question as well, purely because I've had that conversation many times where people say, oh, no, I don't need you to look at it. I got it from my mate and they got the advice done at the time (laughs) and it's a really schmick document, but don't worry about it. And the fear that always goes through me is how do you know that your friend or your colleague or whoever it is paid the right advisor to get it done properly and didn't get it off a friend who got it off a friend who wrote it themselves? Don't assume that it's fit for purpose. As I say, most people are willing to look at service agreements at an initial aspect at no cost. So I can tell you very quickly and very cheaply that it's fine or that there might be some issues. So most people will do that and most advisors will do that just to let you know and give you that peace of mind, hopefully. Take up that opportunity. Don't be that person that is asking for documents on Facebook groups and everything else because, as I say, you don't know that the people you're getting it from have done it properly unless it's got my Vine Law logo on the front cover, in which case it's probably <laughs> <laughs> And in which case it's likely to be copyright, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there might be some other issues there, but we won't go into that today. <laughs> yep. And look, certainly it's a case of make sure you don't get those documents off people on Facebook because they can lead to some really horrible war stories that both Kelly and I probably have. 
I'm sure Kelly's probably got better war stories than what I do, being the joyous account that gets the receipts in boxes and all sorts of things like that. <laughs> yeah. So I do actually get a lot of service agreements across my desk that I always like to check because that is a part of what an accountant or a bookkeeper or whoever's invoicing should do, be checking that everything's what you're doing in your financial system matches your agreement. And I'll just briefly tell you about a couple. So a couple of common ones that I've seen are service agreements that have the wrong practice or doctor name in them. So they've obviously <laughs> been borrowed. Oh. People don't update all the fields in all the text. So that's happened numerous times, which is quite interesting because if you send it back to the original practice, they probably don't realise that their agreement's been shared around. The other one is in the often agreements will have a schedule at the end that details service fees and that sort of thing. So often the service fee is written incorrectly. So I see a lot of 65% plus GST or 70% plus GST in the service fee line. And I'm always like, well, that doesn't sound right. And then and the person will say, yeah, no, that's right. That's what we pay. Like, that's not your service fee. So a few things like that. And then probably the other one is agreements that have been done recently by lawyers that are maybe not as experienced as somebody like Ben who have done their best effort to take into account the changes and the agreements just turned into something that is just not commercial or fit for purpose. So taking so many things out and changing things to the extent that it just doesn't really make sense or protect anybody or explain the relationship between the parties very well anymore. So yeah, hopefully those examples will serve as a warning for anyone getting agreements through forums or mates. <laughs> I can see people reaching for their folders now going, where did I get this one from and what are we doing? <laughs> so the rifle of paper through my ears. Hey, we're coming to the end of our time together. And I just wanted to give Kelly and Ben a chance to those parting bits of wisdom. What would you like practice managers to know after listening to these two episodes. Uh, ben, what would your parting words of wisdom be? I think probably don't be a practice that waits it out to see what happens or just go, oh, well, I haven't heard from the revenue office for 10 years, 20 years, or however long it is, I should be fine. The number of people we talk to where they say, I've had so many sleepless nights because I have had the letter and I could have dealt with this years ago or sleepless nights because I don't know what to do. Avoid that. Just have the conversation. Get it over and done with. Rip the Band-Aid off and know that you've got the best case that you can put forward. And certainly, yeah, look, make sure you talk to people that genuinely know the space like Kelly and myself. Don't fall victim to the various people that will say, I've got health experience, but don't really. Everyone will preach it, but not many people in Australia actually do have that experience. And Kelly, what about you? What are your final words of wisdom? Yeah, I think just break this whole thing down into stages. Start by looking at your exposure and your risk levels, having some conversations with those experienced people, and then break down a list of actions and changes that may need to be made. And just do it piece by piece and get everybody on the team, the advisor team and the management team of the business all together to work through those stages so everything gels together. And at the end of the day, it is a pain. Nobody wants to do it, but it is part of running a medical practice now that that is a consideration. So roll with it, do the best that you can and try not to read too many horror stories online and hopefully in 12 months time where it's sort of over the hump the other side. 
And Riff, what's your final thoughts after us? We became immediate accounts and lawyers for the last two episodes. Oh, what's, what's your I final know. Thoughts? It's, it's, uh, it's such a juicy conversation, isn't it? Look, I guess for me, the takeaway, especially for the practice management cohort, is to do the learning that you need to do in order to understand the space that you're playing in. Because once you feel a little bit more confident about the themes and the ideas behind what we're talking about, you can then ask better questions. And so you will feel more confident to go and have a talk to your accountant and your legal team and understand whether you can take comfort from the advice that you're being provided or perhaps look more broadly in order to get that advice. So do some training. If some of the themes have still got you a bit stumped, there's a lot of information out there. Hopefully we've started to open up the doors to get that visibility and that clarity going, but there is complexity to it. So do your homework and get comfortable with it so you can ask good questions. That's my takeaway. That's amazing. And I think I'm going to take away that comment that the grass may be greener on the other side, that this effort is actually not just in vain. It actually makes a better business and a better practice. And you know what? For me, a better business and a better practice makes it easy to look after our patients. And that's why we do all this. And that's where it's going to come back to. And the business needs to be supporting the fact that we're there looking after our patients. If the grass is greener and it makes that a bit easier, then more time to focus in on looking after our patients. I just want to say a massive thank you to Kelly and a massive thank you to Ben. Your generosity in giving so much of your time and your insights, because I know this is your business is offering advice and support to practices. So for you to come and give that to everyone is something that I think Riv and I and everyone at the MediCues podcast is just really grateful for that commitment. And the passion you have for looking after our industry comes through. Once again, very grateful for your time and generosity. Thanks very much. Absolutely massive gratitude from me too. Thanks. That's it for this episode. We'll talk to you all again next time. Stay tuned for what we're coming up. Bye. Thanks for listening to the MediCubes podcast. Make sure you subscribe via your favorite podcast listening app so you don't miss an episode. MediCubes is brought to you by Cubico, MediCoach and Medical Business Services with technical support from the awesome crew at Talking Health Tech. This podcast presents information of a general nature and we recommend that you obtain professional advice for your individual circumstances always. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics on the show. Make sure you visit us via the Minicubes website, which you can access via the show notes of this episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show, write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with someone who might get some value from it so we can continue to share these important messages with more people. Speak to you next time.